everyone. Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In this week's episode, we interview Do Kwon, co-founder of the Terra ecosystem, which includes a payments network, a stablecoin, a lending protocol, and a synthetic assets platform. We talk about how he was able to achieve what most crypto companies can't, which is to get a broad non-crypto native user base. Terra's Chai payment system, which uses the Terra stablecoin, has about 2.5 million active users in Korea. Kwon says there's so much money to be made without bringing new people in that many DeFi developers just settle with looking inwards into crypto. Kwon explains how the Terra stablecoin is able to hold its peg and how its use drives value to the Luna token, Terra's governance token. We also talk about Anchor, Terra's new lending platform, and how it's able to offer 20% fixed rate yields. Quan dives into the vision behind Mirror, Terra's synthetic assets trading platform. The goal of Mirror is to give people anywhere in the world access to invest in US equities. He says US companies lead the world in terms of innovation, but it's very hard for people outside of the US to benefit from their growth. At a time when much of crypto is focused on its equivalent of Wall Street, or wealthy investors and speculators, Quan wants to focus on making products for Main Street. Otherwise, he says, capital is just allocated in a vacuum, instead of where there is actual production taking place. Before we get to it, here's a word about our sponsors. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. In their new Bal for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bal tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. Check out Kraken, where you can earn additional rewards by staking some of your favorite DeFi assets. With more than 1 billion in crypto staked, including 350,000 ETH, Kraken has paid out 27 million worth of rewards to their clients. Pay it twice a week and you can earn up to 20% annually. Sign up today at kraken.com and start earning some of the most popular DeFi assets, including Polkadot, Uniswap, Aave, and more. Sirion offers a simple interface to access and use decentralized finance. You can connect your favorite wallet, trade tokens, liquidity provider shares, and vaults in a single transaction. And then you'll be able to track your PNL, average costs, and fees paid. All of this now is also available on mobile. Ensign provides an easy way to build scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Ensign is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. 
The Enzyme interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Enzyme.finance. All right, uh, so here we are with Do Kwan. Do, uh, welcome to the Defined Podcast. Uh, really excited for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So uh, Do is a co-founder of Terra, and Terra is a really interesting ecosystem of different blockchain um, applications, including the Terra stablecoin, the Luna token, um, the Anchor Lending uh, platform, the Mirror uh, uh, platform for trading synthetic uh, stocks and digital assets. Um, so there's a lot going on uh, with Terra. Um, there, there's also millions of actual users which is a lot more than than most uh, DeFi and just crypto applications can say. So um, really curious to hear your story on how, how you got here. Uh, but let's start with the beginning. Uh, I'd love to just learn more about you and your background and what got you into crypto. Yeah, so um, when I first uh, graduated from computer science, so I was, I'm a software engineer by trading. Uh, training. Um, I um, joined Microsoft as an engineer, and a lot of the work that I was doing was in NLP. So uh, it, you know, like when I first joined, um, I maybe it was just like the department that I got placed in, but our team had you know 34 engineers, and uh, there were I think at any given time just like maybe three or four people doing work. Uh, it was just like not a very ambitious environment for uh, you know like a young aspiring. Uh, engineer to be able to do lots of work. So I used to, you know, started to think of side projects until I made a prototype or something that got me excited enough to, um, you know, to quit and to make a startup. So what that technology did was that it was in Wi-Fi mesh. So it allowed user devices like uh, cell phones and laptops to connect to each other via Wi-Fi, direct or Bluetooth. And the idea was that even if you don't have direct internet access, you know, like connection to a cell tower or a Wi-Fi router, you could connect to the internet through a network of other people around you. So it was sort of like a distributed network of human beings uh, in densely populated or uh, poor internet connection areas. Yeah, so we turned that into a sort of a B2B business, uh, you know, targeting large enterprises like airports and amusement parks and things like that. I mean, you can imagine that the standard Google search query for distributed network turns up a lot of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then that's sort of I, how I got started to get acclimated to, to crypto. And I, I think sort of a turning moment for me was when one of my friends invited me to a Facebook chat group with eight people. And then it was mainly, you know, uh, friends from college that were talking about things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, different things like that. And then that conversation actually turned out to be a lot more intelligent than uh, the stuff you find on Reddit. So that's when I got hooked and then started to spend more time looking at white papers and uh, going to meetups and participating in community chats until, uh, you know, in 2017, I decided to, uh, you know, um, to, to quit my company and then to do something in, in crypto full time. Um, and so what, when you decided to quit your, your company, this is a, the dis distributed network, like Wi-Fi solution that, that you started, right? 
Okay. And then um, what was the first thing that you did in crypto full time? Yeah. So um, actually, like the, I, I quit my job in Halloween of 2017. And then that day, uh, I went out for drinks with one of my friends um, who was um, running like a small fund of sorts at the time. And then he invited another friend. Um, and then that friend turned out to be uh, my the, the co-founder of Terra, uh, Daniel Shin. Uh, and then, you know, like at the bar that day, we started to talk about, um, you know, like he was like looking to buy Qtum, which was, you know, like, I, I don't know if you remember Qtum, but it was like the basic premise was that you combine the best of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then, um, you, you know, like the web page didn't really scale correctly and it was worth like $6 billion or something. And then we, and then I asked him, do you really want to invest in something that can't put together a website without typos or scaling correctly? And then that led to an interesting conversation about like what, what it would take to uh, get a cryptocurrency that has lots and lots of real, real users. So that adoption conversation led to stable coins and led to uh, what is Terra today. That's so interesting because back in 2017, there weren't many stable coins. Like obviously right now, stable coins are super popular. Um, everyone uses them for, for trading. Um, but in 2017, it was Teller, right? And I don't know, like if, if there were that many others, like obviously Dai wasn't around. Um, USDC wasn't around, I don't think. Right. Um, so that's interesting. I mean, what kind of um, made you think of stable coins as, as like the mainstream use case? Yeah. So, so I mean, there, there were a couple of different reasons, but uh, when most people that were doing something in that say digital commerce looked at Bitcoin for the first time, um, like the main roadblock to getting Bitcoin adopted wasn't so much, you know, speed or scalability it was, you know, volatility, right? So a uh, Bitcoin has upside, yes, but in a marginal business, like let's say an e-commerce company or any any company that sells goods and services across the internet, it's actually cost prohibitive to have that volatility built into Bitcoin. And, you know, Tesla can afford it because, you know, it's Tesla. But for most companies, uh, it's really hard to run the risk of your proceeds going dropping significantly in price because that volatility can make it difficult to meet, let's say payroll or to pay distributors uh, in a timely fashion. So from a business perspective, volatility was one of the great, greatest roadblocks to adopting cryptocurrencies. There's you know, obviously different things like uh, custody, wallet management and different things like that. But like fundamentally, if you couldn't get to a state where you could sort of guarantee uh, crypto holding value stable to some mainstream unit of accounts, then uh, we, we thought it'd be really hard to get it adopted. So um, there was this paper called Senior and Shares uh, by this um, British gentleman called Robert Sams that uh, I read through when I was doing uh, research into crypto. And um, that actually later inspired a lot of uh, algorithmic stablecoin projects like let's say Basecoin, Terra, and uh, I, think, I think to some extent MakerDAO and uh, lots of other ones that came after it. And the idea was that Essentially, you would sort of have a second coin from the stable coin absorb all the volatility from the first. And the idea was that there are a set of people that enjoy that volatility for speculative purposes. 
And uh, by having the second group absorb all the volatility from the first, you can allow the stablecoin to be used as a medium of exchange, store value, and unit of accounts in day-to-day business. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So obviously, that's that's the model that Dai has with, um, well, at first just ETH backing, backing the stablecoin Dai um, and absorbing that uh, volatility. As you know, people also use the like take the the other side, right? Um, right. With with Terra, does it work in in the same way? Like, how how does Terra achieve its uh, stability? Yeah. So in, in a weird way, um, MakerDAO is quite similar to senior shares as well. Instead of creating their second currency, they simply use Ether, right? So when the, um, shall we say, the circulation of DAI is decreasing, right? It's as if Ether that's been locked up is being minted uh, out of CDPs and entering the circulating market through, through liquidations and margin calls, right? Uh, and then when the markets are good and there's more DAI in demand, uh, it's as if more ether is being burned and locked up into CDP contracts to, um, uh, yeah, so it's like a very similar model where ETH absorbs the volatility of the DAI stablecoin in some sense. Um, so the primary difference between MakerDAO and Terra is that um, with, with Maker, it's an over collateralization model. So given that they use a second larger currency, they don't have the luxury of, let's say, minting ether whenever they choose to or burning ether arbitrarily. So what that means is that uh, any time that you want to create one unit of Thai stablecoin, you need to lock up, let's say, $150 worth of ETH because you want to leave some room for arbitragers to be able to, you know, make the system whole whenever you need to liquidate collateral to to be able to buy back Thai uh, stablecoins for circulation. So for Terra, uh, it's it's a different model where the second currency itself is native and something that we've created. So the entire model is that any time that you want to mint a dollar's worth of Terra stablecoin, you burn a dollar's worth of Luna. And then vice versa, if you're looking to redeem a dollar's worth of Terra USD, you, uh, the system mints and gives you back a dollar's worth of Luna. So in that sense, like given that it's a one-to-one pegging between Terra stablecoins and Luna, uh, it's more capital efficient. But of course, um, like given that it's like an entirely new currency, um, you know, in sort of black swan situations, uh, you, you can make the argument that it is more fragile than what you would find in sort of um, larger crypto-backed counterparts like MakerDAO. So, like, just like without like studying this very closely or having a degree in economics, <laughs> um, just thinking what the risk could be, like, could could some like could um a large group of people just start trying to uh mm, since there's since it's just like easier to to mint a, a lot of the the stablecoin um can somebody just like buy a bunch of of uh, luna and and in that way just like mint a bunch a bunch of stablecoin and then I don't know, like, it, it seems like because there's no kind of external currency to it, 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 it seems like it's hard, it's easier to game for, um, I don't know, like, how, how, how did you, how, how did you 
go about kind of like reaching some sort of equilibrium where um, it's expensive to do that. Like when when it's expensive to just like come up with a bunch of Luna and try to game the system. Yeah, so uh, for all these stablecoin systems, the biggest point of risk is when uh, cascading liquidations happen. So if you r remember what happened in, on Black Friday, uh, March of 2020, you had a bunch of DeFi protocols fail at the same time. So you, you had cascading liquidations where, you know, Maker Protocol, for instance, tried to sell all the Ether that it had to be able to buy back DAI. But um, there were too many transactions that were happening. Transactions were clogged on the mempool. So uh, you had a momentary situation where the Maker Protocol was insolvent to, it was like $13 million or something like that. And it's, it's exactly the same mechanism, right? So um, in a time where you're trying to sell the collateral, in order to make the principal whole, right? Similar to how, like if you're trying to sell a lot of ETH quickly, or let's say like a bunch of margin longs on Binance gets liquidated for BNB, and then it leads to like a 20, 30% price drop really quickly, or uh, you know any, any similar situation like that. If a lot of people are trying to redeem Terra USD quickly for Luna, then in that case, uh, Luna gets uh, sold off in the market very quickly. And then that leads to sort of a cascading failure where the cost of redemption gets higher and higher, right? So I, I, I think uh, the, the weakness there is that Luna is gonna be less liquid and it's less valuable right now than Ethereum. So uh, you know that cost of cascading failures is gonna be larger. But the upside though, is that uh, given that the system doesn't keep any explicit collateral, uh, if arbitragers are willing to wait until that cascading uh, liquidations has stopped, in that case, you can still uh, redeem Terra USD for whatever uh, market value of Luna happens to be at that any given time. Yeah, so you know, cascading failures could happen uh, if you know a lot of stablecoins are being redeemed at the same time. Mm -hmm. But uh, the design of the protocol is that it should eventually be able to recover. Have you ever had a, an event like that happen? No, uh, so we haven't had anything like that. So uh, that, that's actually like a really interesting point. So um, one of the things that I thought like a lot of stablecoin designs are missing is that it, it really like at the end of the day, the core stability comes from utility and adoption. And what I mean by this is that the US dollar isn't the, isn't the most stable because they have the most intricate monetary policy. In fact, it actually so happens that the larger the economy, the less intricate the monetary policy. Right. Uh, the U.S. dollar is the strongest because it is the most widely used uh, fiat currency in the entire world. Right. So taking inspiration from that, I thought if, if you're going to you know, be designing a stablecoin and then present it to the wild and then you're sort of hoping that some people pick it up for this this use or another use, then in that case, you know, and, and it's poorly adopted, then it's going to be very hold, hard to hold the peg. So if you saw like an explosion of algorithmic stablecoins during summer of last year, like every single one of them failed to hold the peg, especially because, you know, they weren't able to foster any non-speculative use cases around them. So uh, basically, we thought like a good way to make sure that Terra's economy and its peg becomes robust over time is to create lots of use cases around them that, that are sticky. So for example, payments. Uh, so today, Terra stablecoins are being used by you know, like 2.6 million people in Korea for, um, you know, payment transactions. And then it turns out that with payments, like user adoption is fairly sticky. So once you start to get into the habit of, let's say, uh, buying milk or your diapers uh, with, with like a payment medium, 
you generally don't switch for long periods of time. So if you're sort of able to raise the demand floor over time by building and diversifying the use cases that are built around the stable coin, then it's, um, it's uh, yeah, the stability profile of the currency gets much, much stronger. And and who's taking the other side? Like who who is uh, who's um, like uh, using like the Luna uh, side to it? Like who's actually kind of um, minting and, and redeeming uh, these stable coins? Well, so like um, like it's it's profitable in lots of different cases for market making firms or trading firms to be doing the swaps. Mm -hmm. So, for example, at any given time. If Terra USD is trading above a dollar, then there's an arbitrage opportunity for people to buy up a dollar's worth of Luna, swap it to Terra USD, and then sell it in the market for a premium. And then vice versa for redemptions as well. Oh, so um, yeah. So we we have a number of um, you know trading entities and individuals that engage in these types of swaps, and probably many that we don't know about. Very cool. Um, okay, so you mentioned that there's a millions of people right now using the uh, Terra stablecoins. Um, and that's that's something that many uh, cryptocurrency uh, projects aspire to, obviously. What do you think you've done to get this right? Like, how, how did you get this kind of wide user base? Yeah, so um, to be completely honest with you, I think in the beginning, when we tried to sell the idea of crypto payments to e-commerce companies, I think most of them didn't get it. So, um, you know, I, I think in the beginning, um, you know, Daniel's sales network really helped because um, he had built the first and one of the largest e-commerce companies in the country, as well as, you know, like the largest um, uh, shared office. So we work uh, copycat that's about to IPO uh, pretty soon. It is now bigger than we work in the country. Uh, so he was able to sort of get like, um, like a lot of the e-commerce founders to, uh, agree to adopt the currency. And then when we tried to sell it to their working level, um, there was very little understanding, but I, I think now there's a lot more, um, clarity around the business proposition. That's getting a lot of merchants to adopt, uh, Chai. So the payment, payment, payment service, and then to push it very strongly to their consumers. And the business case is pretty simple. So we, um, you know, using stablecoin networks to settle has two major benefits. So first, uh, you are able to settle very quickly. So in using traditional payment services, the average settlement timing is about seven days. So which means that once a user, uh, you know, pays uh, on the e-commerce website for something, the payment gateway would enter a seven-day delay for the money to be transferred to you, uh, which is, you know, prohibitively expensive for a lot of different use cases, right? So for example, if the platform works with lots of freelancers or smaller businesses, then in lots of cases, these smaller businesses need the money right away because they have working capital issues. So like a cab driver, for instance, might need the money right away to be able to uh, put food on their family's uh, dinner table or to be able to pay for gas uh, for next day rides. And same for like small restaurants and things like that. So um, by not settling using traditional settlement networks, but to settle to merchants directly in stablecoin, we're able to cut down settlement times from seven days to six seconds, which is the average block time of the Terra blockchain. And um, you know what, what? What we've also done is that we've sort of added a lot of admin tools, such that um, you know merchants can 
you know, get analytics and understanding of how the revenues are coming from, swap out easily out to fiat uh, if they so choose to. So, you know, I, I, I think bringing that value proposition to merchants has been very, very valuable. Second thing is, uh, given that we don't use any of the existing settlement networks, we're able to cut down the fees from, uh, I think the market rate is anywhere between 27 to 3.3%. We cut that down to 1.5%. So, um, you know, like in, in a very tight marginal business, uh, like e-commerce, where like if you net marketing, sometimes you're losing money or sometimes you're running on like two to 3% margins. If you're able to save a percentage point, that's a big deal. So, you know, faster settlement times and cheaper fees combined. Uh, and when we integrate with the merchant, they, they, it's, they have a vested interest to make sure consumers use us instead of credit cards. So they do like promotions and like marketing events to make sure that uh, people, people uh, switch over. That's so interesting. And then do they, do they um, swap the uh, Terra stable coins for, for local currency, like for Korean won, or do they, do they keep that? Oh, so at some point, everyone swaps out uh, to fiat because they needed to pay distributors and stuff. The speed at which uh, people do conversion depends on industry to industry. Mm -hmm. So for example, for industries like fashion, uh, they have a higher tolerance because um, you know it's, it's a high margin business and they don't need to swap very frequently. For sort of very high velocity businesses, and they swap very frequently. Um, and that, that's, that's because one of the main value propositions of this is that you're able to get your money quicker. Right. Um, so wh why do you think that, I mean, that same kind of like going to market strategy uh, hasn't really picked up that much in the US? Uh, like, like and to, to, I guess to, to backtrack a little bit, like um, in Korea, how, like what percentage of, of merchants are using Thai? would you say? So uh, it's a very top heavy strategy. So we have about 45 to 50 very large merchants mm. uh, working with us. So for example, like the largest convenience store chain, the largest bookstore, the largest, um, so it's kind of like a premium uh, brand name acquisition strategy. And, and then in terms of the long tail, it's uh, not very heavy. Okay. Um, but um. You know, like at 2.5 uh, million, it's about 5% of the population here. So it's, um, you know, growing fast and uh, fairly decent sizing already. Yeah. So why do you think the uh, difference in, is? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, I think actually in crypto, if you, um, it's, it's actually, the incentives are such that you can build something that's, you know, catered towards uh, crypto, uh, towards the crypto industry. And that's just going to be a lot more worthwhile than going out into the real world and trying to acquire users. So for an average developer, uh, if you wanted to, I, I mean, I mean I'm, get, I'm guessing that for most people, like the goal is profit maximization. So if you wanted to get rich quickly, it's just much easier to build a small team of people that are trying to, let's say, issue an NFT protocol or a DeFi protocol. And then that's gonna have, you know, a decent number of users, like maybe, you know, you know a few thousand. And then that's just gonna be enough to uh, make the developers very wealthy, right? Uh, because of the market. So it just doesn't make sense to go through, so sort of the hurdle of educating consumers and then 
uh, building relationships and then doing sales when you could, you know, probably 10x the result with a hundred of the effort in a short time. I think that's a good hypothesis. And maybe it was kind of the, you were, so you started this in 2017. So in the middle of a bull market, but then like, I guess like all of the adoption and and uh, like building continued through the, the bear market. Do you think maybe that kind of played a role into why you like moved really strongly into like outside of crypto since it wasn't as easy as it is now to make money inside of crypto? Yeah, so um, ultimately I'm like one of those people that believe that Wall Street only exists because of Main Street, right? At, at the end of the day, if you think about what are the key levers that moves the economy, it's the people that are actually producing things with the capital that's been allocated. But if capital is allocated in a vacuum, then it's kind of meaningless, right? That, that's essentially what a bubble is. So I, I felt like, you know, it's, it's not so much that I don't think that the things that are being done inwardly in crypto is valuable. Those are extremely valuable. But I felt like there was nobody that was trying to do things uh, looking outwards into, you know, sort of growing the pie, bringing more users in, and making crypto more approachable for the everyday user. So, um, you know, somebody had to do the job and I felt like that was a good place to start as any. Uh, it's, um, you know, the jury's still out as to whether that was a good idea, but I, it's, it's extremely fulfilling because you, you see, uh, for example, like even outside of payments, if you look at Mirror Protocol, like the, the thesis is that you can invest into any asset class at once without restrictions or hampering uh, with existing systems. And then like our top markets are Thailand, China, and Indonesia, where the access to US equities is really, really difficult to do. So, uh, and then we're seeing very small ticket sizes come in, like maybe there's like a $50 stock purchase. I've seen even like a $9 purchase, right? So obviously uh, we're, uh, you know, there's something that we're doing to lift barriers to allow, uh, you know, smaller users to come in that are outside of crypto today. And then the value proposition is making their lives better. So it's, it's uh, so, yeah, it feels good when you see stuff like that. Yeah, uh, 100% I agree. So do you think right now, um, is is DeFi in a bubble in that sense? Like, is, is are DeFi protocols uh, making, uh, like, building inwardly and, and just making money, like, just like this, like, cycling money system of, like, yield farming and pump and dumping uh, new tokens and farms uh, it does it yeah. does feel a little bit like a like a bubble to be honest like this just like inward cycling of of capital um what what, what do you think well but cami if you think about it like in 2017 the problem was that teams were shipping too slowly right so you've seen like companies raise like 100 million dollars and then ship nothing two years later but with DeFi, it was sort of like the opposite problem where uh, people weren't raising any money and then shipping too quickly and then things breaking, right? So obviously things are moving for the better in the sense that like, even if you look at private markets, uh, valuations for new DeFi protocols that are coming out are much, much lower. There's no more companies that are raising like $50 million anymore, right? So uh, in some sense, I, I would say that there is a lot of hype, but uh, I think the fundamentals in DeFi are a lot stronger than what ICOs looked like in 2017. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I, 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 I think it's fine if there's lots of different projects like food coins, like pickle and like French fry or like souffle. This probably, these are probably real coins, right? Uh, it's, it's fine if uh, these assets, you know, sort of yield farming in a vacuum, because if there's, you know, projects like mirror and like anchor and different types of things, you know, bring in users to fill in the base layer. Then in that case, the more speculative stuff that gets built out on top just leads to better allocation of capital. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to do the former such that the latter doesn't turn into a bubble. Makes sense. Um, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, this is another world compared to 2017. There's like actual useful uh, projects being built, actual users, even though like, it feels like much of it is speculation. I agree that kind of the, um, and like the outcome of all this speculation will be just, you know, better products, um, and bringing in, um, other types of users who are, you know, like hopefully leveraging uh, open finance for for the real lives and and not just you know for flipping some some like food coin. <laughs> um, right. So, okay. So with this, um, like a very large user base and 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 people actually using the, the Terra stablecoin for for payments, how is the Terra blockchain able to um, to support uh, this level of transaction and, and throughput, like how is it built? Yeah, so um, we, so uh, Terra is a uh, DPoS um, consensus mechanism uh, with um, Luna as the staking token. So we use Tendermint and the Cosmos SDK. So uh, right now there's a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of performance optimization that needs to be done in you know, Tendermint Core or the SDK itself. So right now, I would say, like, sort of the practical throughput that we're saying, seeing is maybe 700 TPS per sec, uh, TPS. But um, you know, I think with with a few optimizations, it can get to a couple thousand. Um, but like, if you and this leads to like an interesting dialogue about you know Cosmos and how I look at Tendermint uh, in general. But um, I, I I think actually like the branding of uh, Cosmos as an interoperability solution is not a great one. I think it should actually be branded as a scaling solution. And uh, if you think about it, like if you look at all the different Cosmos zones that are uh, you know built in the system, they're sort of exactly the same as shards, right? Uh, in, in a sharded blockchain, except that they're branded independently. Uh, they run according to a very similar set of rules. They just sort of run local computation that are relevant to that side of the world. Right. And then you sort of have IBC as uh, the consensus there where, uh, you know, if things need to be stored to global state, then you sync up using three layers. Right. So, um, you know, I think I think the future of Terra, like uh, using this technology is pretty simple. Right. It's essentially going to get to a branded charted blockchain where, uh, you know, each of the applications that are being built out, like, for example, Chai could be its own independent uh, state machine and then maybe like even within Chai, depending on geographic regions and things like that, that could that could have its own state machines. And then Mirror Protocol could have its own state. Anchor could have its own state. And wherever it becomes important to sort of uh, settle to the mon monetary layer, uh, which is to use Terra stablecoins, then in that case, you sync global state to sort of a global Terra hub using IBC. Yeah. Okay. And the, so DPoS is delegated proof of stake. Right. 
Um, and, and that's the consensus mechanism of like the Cosmos ecosystem. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all Cosmos, uh, related projects use, um, a proof of stake consensus mechanism called Tendermint, which is sort of like the core innovation of the Cosmos ecosystem. And, um, I, I would say that for most intents and purposes is the first proof of stake uh, mechanism used widely in blockchains. Hmm. Right. Um, and then when you, when you, um, like to achieve like the, like finality, I guess, like when all the transactions are confirmed um, and uh, they are kind of, downloaded to like the the layer one um is that uh, is is that does that happen on the same kind of uh blockchain that all of the tendermint blockchains use or is it like a, no, no, like no, terra specific they're all separate they're all oh, they're separate all separate kind of shards yeah. okay well, no, it, right, right now they're all separate blockchains and then yeah. uh you know the cosmos vision is that they will sort of tie together all these uh, separate blockchains into uh, and then have some sort of global global hub. Okay. Right? Uh, and and the technology that enables this is called IBC. But um, I don't think any of the Cosmos blockchains have connected using IBC yet. So they're all sort of independent, uh, running their own thing. Okay. And the reason why you would want to connect using IBC is because then you can easily transfer assets from like one blockchain to another in in this like Cosmos ecosystem. No, so I that, that that's what I mean when I say that is the wrong narrative, right? Oh, so, okay. Um, yeah, so Cosmos is an interoperability uh, solution. I I think is valuable, but I think it's far mm -hmm. more valuable to think of it as a scaling solution, right? Because uh, if you have sort of uh, branded logically independent blockchains or independent shards, then in that case you can sort of separate logic into uh, all these different shards. And then just only keep global state for the really important stuff. Right? Okay. And uh, yeah. So in, in this kind of like uh, blockchain trilemma, uh, that's, you know, famously uh, decentralization, security, and throughput or like performance. Um, it seems like, I mean, where do you think um, Terra is compromising? Like, seems like it might is it um decentralization like how many nodes is is are there in in this uh delegated proof of stake blockchain uh right now there's a hundred okay yeah. so so it's, i mean yeah do you think that's kind of where where you're like compromising on to achieve greater throughput yeah so i i would say there's definitely sacrifice in decentralization um, in the sense that it's it's not so much that it's centralized, but every time where state becomes too much to handle in one set of validators, you need to split it off into uh, different um, uh, security consensus, mm. right? So in some sense, like in order for the blockchain to scale, we've chosen a design whereby we split off security into uh, local zones or uh, local hubs of security. So in some sense, like as the blockchain is scaling, uh, you know, there's a smaller set of data that the global consensus reaches agreement on. Okay, so when 
let me see if I understood this. So when um, when the the state of the blockchain uh, becomes too big because there's too many transactions, you split up that uh, that state, like that information, into into separate uh, blockchains or like into yeah, like other yeah. nodes. Yeah. So we we, okay. we we haven't done this yet, and right now everything is running on the Terra blockchain. Okay. But uh, the eventual goal is that if it gets too crowded. Uh, we'll just spin up another blockchain oh, using okay, okay. Tendermint and the Cosmos SDK. And then we'll connect that to the Terra Hub using IBC. Um, and, you know, like in, in some sense, like if you have too many of these sort of smaller local blockchains and they, they have their own validators, uh, you could lead to a situation where it's um, less secure than the main blockchain. Right. If okay. That yeah. So that's the risk of doing that, but you haven't had the need to actually do that yet. Right. Cool. Um, okay. And then changing gears a little bit, I wanted uh, to talk about Anchor to this um, new lending protocol that you launched recently, uh, last last month, right? Yes. Um, and everyone should head to our YouTube channel to watch uh, the tutorial uh, we did on on Anchor. Um, so we'd love to uh, hear more about this. Like, what's the idea behind Anchor? How is it uh, different to other um, DeFi lending protocols? And importantly, uh, like the, the big like value prop here was stable yields. Um, so how is it? Like, how are you able to offer that? Yeah. Um, so to talk about the motivation for the project a little bit, um, I think we're living in an interesting time where uh, interest rates are kept artificially low for political purposes, right? So if you look at um, like how inflation is changing against most uh, CPI, um, it's, um, you know, the dollar is losing value to the tune of 2-3%. But if you look at, um, you know, more competitive indexes, like for example, uh, the S&P 500 or most real estate indexes, it's losing value to the tune of almost double digits. Um, so we've, we're have we at a point in time where the average household is not making enough money from savings to justify cost of capital. Um, and it's, yeah, so obviously that's not good. So where um, Anchor wants to get to is the um, ability to offer an interest rate that is apolitical and unbiased and really justifies the cost of holding money in a savings account for the average household. Um, how it differs from, you know, sort of day-to-day, -day, uh, more household name uh, DeFi protocols like Aave or Compound is that if you look at, let's say, uh, Aave or Compound, for instance, like the interest rate that you can get on stable coins fluctuates pretty widely anywhere between 0% to 12% in a matter of hours. And the reason why it fluctuates is because, you know, uh, the only reason to borrow USDC or stable coins from these protocols is, you know, um, demand for leverage on speculation. So when demand for leverage is high, then yield is going to be high. And then when that opportunity diminishes, then yields are going to collapse to zero. So obviously that's not a great uh, savings experience for the user because when I'm putting money in a savings account, I kind of want to put it there and forget about it. But if I'm not sure if I'm going to get, you know, 0% or 3% or 7%, while running technical risk of putting money in a smart contract, then it just doesn't make sense to be able to do it. Um, so Anchor is uh, able to offer um, a 20% uh, fixed income product for the user. So the idea is that if you deposit Terra USD into Anchor, you're able to earn 20% per annum, and that, that rate is guaranteed. 
unless the rate is changed by governance. Um, so how this works is um, whenever you deposit stablecoins into Anchor, uh, you know, a portion of the deposits are facilitated to loan out to users that borrow stablecoin by locking up their POS collateral in a smart contract. And then the protocol puts that uh, POS collateral to work to earn staking yield across multiple different POS chains, and then confers that POS yield to the depositor in the form of yield. So uh, in some sense, like by using cash flow based assets to as collateral in, in Anchor's money market, you're able to get to a state where you have a diversified stream of proof of stake yields coming in from multiple different blockchains, powering a stable yield for the user. So um, in, in some sense, it's a lot more robust than what you would see from uh, DeFi, uh, DeFi yield farming uh, schemes or uh, any other source of uh, yield in blockchains today. Super interesting. But that that depends on proof of stake yields um, remaining high, right? Uh, how can you how can you guarantee that proof of stake yields will remain at 20 percent? Also, um, well, so to do a little bit of the back back end, uh, back of the envelope math, it's, um, you know, you know, it's whatever the average proof of stake yields are times the minimal collateralization ratio. Because, you know, like the loans are going to be, let's say, you know, half of whatever outstanding collateral is out there because the system is over collateralized. So, for example, if the average staking yield is, let's say, 12 percent uh, and the minimal collateralization ratio is 200 percent, then the system can technically offer, you know, 24 percent in yields without uh, the system going bankrupt. So the as to whether POS staking yields are going to stay at, you know, 10, 12 percent range uh, for the foreseeable future. Most blockchains have a fixed monetary policy or fixed uh, token emission, which means that uh, denominated in that POS coin, it's going to yield uh, that fixed number of coins for like a really long period of time. So some of some of them have an expiration date on the emission. Some of them keep going in perpetuity. But um, yeah, given that the monetary policy is fixed, it's going to keep going for some time. I think though that as blockchains mature. Um, you know, POS blockchains are going to try to curb down emissions to a level that is more manageable because, you know, like otherwise it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not great and it's too dilutive. But um, I, I think that's going to take many, many years uh, for, for that to happen. And then when it does, I, I, I suspect that anchor rates will have to cut, keep coming down as well. But the point is that it's never going to get to a state where it's lower than inflation, if that makes sense. Yeah, super interesting. And so, um, which proof of stakes chains are you using for this? Yeah, so right now, uh, when we first launched last month, we only uh, integrated with Luna. Uh, mm. Upcoming chains are uh, ST, uh, so that's the staking derivative on the, uh, for Ether uh, that oh. we're going to integrate with soon. And then um, Solana, which oh, is going to be. Yeah, it's um, it's also going to be interesting, and then we're also going to be working on Polkadot, and mm -hmm. then Cosmos Atom, uh, and um, yeah, a few, a few other ones for which we don't have, you know, solid development uh, timelines for yet. But the goal is to basically encompass most uh, large cap POS POS coins. Cool. Okay, so right now it's it's all kind of staying within the same kind of Terra ecosystem. Like you're using the Luna. 
uh, like using the Terra blockchain um, as kind of the, the backend for Anchor uh, to get the, these uh, proof of stake yields. But when you branch out to other uh, proof of stake blockchains, like you'll have to convert those. I mean, it, it seems like the process will be a bit more like there will be more steps involved in, in Anchor. Like you'll have to convert those um, other coins, like outside coins to Terra and then bring that yield to Anchor users, right? Uh, so that's that's really interesting that, that you asked that. We actually have, uh, we're setting up Anchor contracts in each of the chains. So there's going to be a version of Anchor on Ethereum. There's going to be a version of Binance Smart Chain. There's going to be a version of Solana and then so on and so forth. And then you, you would even be able to deposit in other stable coins. Mm. So for example, you'd be able to deposit in Tether, Circle, um, you know, even DAI. Uh, and then the idea is that, uh, you know, once a user deposits Tether, we're going to convert that into UST using Curve. And then that UST is going to be ferried over to the Terra blockchain uh, such that it can be deposited into Anchor. And then same for Collateral as well. So it's going to be a blockchain native experience regardless of uh, where you might be playing around with this. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and okay, so your your idea is to build these uh, like Terra uh, protocols across <clears throat> chains. Uh, and yes. okay, and so like in that way, like um, whenever you're using Terra, like if you're on like Ethereum, you don't have to like go somewhere else to use um, Anchor. You can just use it on Ethereum. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. So, I mean, we sort of think about running Terra as like running a very small uh, micro developing economy. Okay. So we sort of think about like the activity that happens using Terra stablecoins outside of the, the Terra blockchain as sort of foreign exports, right? Hmm. So the more that our products get used and integrated into places like Ethereum and Binance uh, smart chain, then, you know, it's, it's, it's good for the economy. And uh, it actually turns out that stablecoins, once they cross over into a different ecosystem, they don't often come back. So in, in some sense, in terms of guaranteeing stability of the overall ecosystem, it's, uh, it's even better than sort of things that are happening in-house uh, in the on the Terra blockchain. So that's, that's an interesting observation. Um, will you do the same with Mirror? Like build on different uh, blockchains? Oh yeah, so Mirror is actually already on uh, Uniswap on Ethereum and uh, PancakeSwap on uh, Binance Smart Chain. And uh, I, I don't know if this is still true now, but when like maybe just even about a month ago, like Mirror pools uh, with UST were some of the more, most liquid on on PancakeSwap. It's it's probably changed at this point, but it was that, that was kind of interesting to see. Oh, cool. Um, okay, and can you can you talk more about the uh, and, and you touched on this um, already, but on on the motivation behind Mirror? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I when when I first started thinking about Mirror, I think it was about September of last year, and then uh, it was you know right after DeFi summer, and some of that was still going on. But uh, I thought it was kind of really funny how all the coins were naming themselves after coins. And then I saw like rug pull after rug pull. And then it, it was kind of like, I, it, was, it was entertaining, but I saw a real opportunity to be able to build uh, defined pr primitives that have value tied to real things, right? So, uh, and that's pretty much what, what Mirror tries to do. So Mirror is basically a synthetics protocol where you can issue tokens that track the price of anything, right? So it could be 
you know, Tesla stock, Apple stock, you know, even GameStop or Coinbase is going to be listing on Mirror like within a few days. But basically the idea is that you're going to have uh, coins that track the price of, you know, every asset in the real world. And then I was thinking that uh, for, let's say, you know, like a derivatives platform, uh, a DeFi platform that's freshly launching, it would make sense to get people that are holding uh, mirrored assets of U.S. equities uh, and then sort of airdropping governance tokens to people that do this. Um, so if you sort of had uh, assets with real world value with much lower risk of impermanent loss, this would be very attractive tools that, you know, DeFi developers can build on to, you know, create sort of uh, things with more tangible value, if that makes sense. Uh, and then it turns out that like from sort of like a very basic use case, uh, there's lots of places in the world where uh, they don't have quality access to U.S. equities. So U.S. companies lead the world in terms of innovation, uh, but it's it's um, and it stands to reason that their assets are very highly desirable. But there are lots of places where you can't get uh, good access to U.S. equities, or in, even in cases when you do, uh, local adversarial regulations make it very difficult for you to uh, to to be able to access it fairly. So, for example, in Korea and Japan, capital gains tax on single stock on U.S. equities is twenty six percent whereas on domestic equities is 0.3%. And every time that you know, demand for US equities goes up, the financial regulator issues a statement saying, hey, look, we're considering hiking up taxes again. Right? So it's fundamentally designed to prevent capital flight and to keep money as, uh, in domestic equity exchanges as much as possible. So um, as, I, as, I, as I alluded to previously, what's been really interesting is that we launched a mirror protocol on Twitter um, and we've done no localization to other languages besides English and have done no marketing efforts whatsoever. But like the highest levels of pickup that we've seen is in markets like Thailand and China and Indonesia, where access to U.S. equities is fragmented and difficult. So, I mean, we, we've sort of been, you know, very surprised ourselves at the level of organic pickup uh, play out in markets where we thought it would have the strongest species. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's been very interesting to see. Yeah, no, I I I love that. I I love the idea behind mirror, just like enabling access to to U.S. stocks for U.S. stocks for everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. I I think people people in the U.S. Uh, kind of like assume that everyone can buy Tesla stock, but that's obviously not the case. Um, right. How how is this peg actually achieved? Like, do you have to hold actual Tesla stock and issue like synthetic assets against it? Like how, how, how does it technically work? Yeah, there's no centralized counterparty. So I, it, this is kind of like an inverse version of MakerDAO. So if you look at MakerDAO, you have a collateral that's posted in uh, ETH and then a stable synthetic that's issued. So that's the DAI stable coin. In the mirror system, it's kind of the opposite. So you have a stable collateral, which is Terra USD stablecoin, and then you issue several different volatile synthetics like M, M Apple or M Tesla or M IAU. So basically, you have a pool of stablecoin collateral that's guaranteeing the principle for these volatile synthetics. And whenever the price of these stocks go up too high, then in that case, the stablecoin collateral is liquidated to be able to buy back uh, these these uh, synthetic assets. 
Got it. And then the price is kept via an oracle, I guess, that talks to like the actual price of, of the stocks. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So interesting. And um, uh, we're running out of time. <laughs> uh, I, I I just had a, a lot of questions to ask you. Um, so on, on Mirror, uh, how what would, how has adoption been so far like it's and and also how is it different from like something like synthetics which was kind of the original uh since synthetic protocol yeah um so to talk about sort of the pickup uh first we're seeing about um you know about 20,000 to 22,000 uh, daily active users on mm -hmm. the mirror web app on the Mirror mobile app, we we don't run that service, um, but uh, sh should have to check. But also, like growth there has been pretty interesting. There's about two billion dollars in TL logged up across uh, Uniswap, uh, TerraSwap on Terra, and then PancakeSwap. So across all these three different exchanges, we're seeing anywhere between uh, fifty to hundred million dollars in daily trading volume that happen on uh, Mirrored assets, and uh, it's it's you know picking up at a pretty fast pace over time. So um, yeah, the, all, all of that has been pretty interesting. The, in terms of like the difference between synthetics is uh, if you look at mirror, it's a very simple value proposition. So uh, you, the idea is that you buy mirrored assets and you hold them and then you can exit whenever the price of uh, mirrored assets goes up. So in terms of buying and selling these assets, like the, the mathematics are pretty simple. You, you hold equities, they go up in value, you exit, You've made that money. With synthetics, um, there's a couple of points where things are made a little bit difficult. So um, they use a scheme whereby uh, users have to first mint SUSD and then use SUSD to be able to trade these various different synthetics. Uh, and then they, they have this idea of infinite liquidity, which means that they can uh, you can swap SUSD to any um, synth uh, without paying like a large spread. There's maybe like like a fixed 0.1% or 0.25% uh, in terms of fees. But um, the problem there is whenever you're looking to exit, you're not actually trading against the uh, the stock market. So if you if Apple goes up 20%, you haven't made 20%. You're actually trading against other synthetics traders in the ecosystem. So you know if all the stock prices start to rally and then you haven't you know uh, traded correctly. Uh, and then everybody else sort of trades well, and then they've uh, sort of made a similar set of trades. You could end up in a situation where you actually don't make that much money, even if the stock market rallied significantly. So that's sort of like the trade-off that you make with Mirror. You have to have explicit liquidity. You need to put uh, you need to put LP into Uniswap and TerraSwap and PancakeSwap, and then that liquidity is bounded, right? So if if the trades are too large for the liquidity to handle and costs are going to go up a lot. On, on the other hand, uh, with synthetics, they have um, you know, infinite liquidity. So you'd be able to make 100 million trade without suffering significant slippage. But the cost to this is that you're trading against other traders. So uh, your sort of return profile is going to be a little bit more complicated than what you would see in sort of a, um, the more vanilla decks, if that makes sense. And then for for that liquidity, I mean to incentivize that liquidity, are uh, liquidity providers um, backing this uh, these synth synthetic assets on Mirror? Uh, they're gaining, I, I guess, like 
uh, trading fees uh, on like people buying the synthetic assets? Right. So um, I think on pancake swap fees might be a little bit lower, but um, you know the the liquidity providers make zero point three percent on every trade, as well as um, there's a liquidity mining program uh, going on with uh, the MIR governance token at the moment. So which is also pretty attractive. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, and then to to wrap up, I know uh, we're uh, running out of time. I I want to just get your. I mean, there's there's a lot going on in in the ecosystem, and like so many different um, interesting uh, protocols in the the Terra blockchain. But what's your like bigger vision um, with like how how do all these pieces fit together like and where where does uh terra fit in just the broader DeFi? yeah um so if we run over time and you have to cut something it's probably not the portion that you should cut so um no. the way that i think about it is that all the layer ones sort of play in uh sort of the cloud or the computation category and the idea is that if a lot of people use this distributed computer then the underlying token is going to uh, grow in value as sort of like a commodity to be able to pay for bandwidth on this on this computer. So Terra is a little bit different. So we do have an execution layer. We do have lots of different apps that are coming out, but we're not in the business or we're not in the game of you know thinking of us ourselves as sort of you know like the fastest execution engine or you know like the best distributed computer. Our, our main product, and we stress this very hard at the firm. Our only product is the money that we've created, which is the Terra stablecoin. And all the different products that we've created on top of it, like Chai, uh, like uh, Mirror, like Anchor, are simply features to make this money more useful. So the idea is that as we have a savings protocol that makes Terra stablecoins more attractive to hold, we have Mirror that makes Terra stablecoins the primary gateway to be able to invest. We have Chai that make our stablecoins easier to pay and lots of different protocols that are happening. The Terra stablecoin is going to be fundamentally more useful to use than either the US dollar or DAI or any other stablecoin that might come after it. And the great thing about this is as Terra stablecoins get more widely used, there's a linear relationship in terms of how the Luna token grows in value. So it's it's not so much that, you know, oh, you know, a lots of Terra is minted, so Luna's gonna moon or anything like that. But having like a coin that uh, having an asset. Uh, capture value in a very succinct way and the growth of a stablecoin, I think is one of the great ways to rally a community around it, right? And these community members, like once they're incentivized through uh, this sort of common value accrual mechanism, sort of roll up their sleeves and go out and build something. So what's been really interesting is that the first generation of Terra protocols has, has been mainly built by me and Terraform Labs. But the second generation, and I think a lot of these might be even better than the first, are being built by community members that sort of just stumbled across the protocol in some way and got really excited by it. So um, yeah, that's been that's been humbling to see. Very cool. Um, okay, so I guess like the bigger vision is to make the Terra stablecoin um, a more useful uh, currency um, than right. even the US dollar. Right. Very cool. Um, awesome. Um, and then, just finally, your your vision for uh, for DeFi or Web three um, is it taking over everything? <laughs> is it uh, sharing the the spotlight with uh, TradFi? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I think, you know, I think the distinction between TradeFi and DeFi might be a thinner than most people think. So for example, I think I like to, I, I think I sit in sort of like the intersection of both of these things a little bit. Like for example, my payment services are definitely TradeFi, right? Like a lot of the DeFi protocols that I've created are very, very DeFi. But, um, but I think the holy grail is, is um, interesting things that happen when these two things sort of start to interplay with each other. And at the intersection, there could be really interesting things. So for example, if we had like anchor yield enabled across, you know, fintech apps, like for example, Chai, or let's say Venmo, how amazing would that be, right? Like all you need to do is in your favorite app that you use to uh, send money to your friends, you know, your money while sitting idle is earning 20% yield. So that's, that's amazing. And, um, you know, like on Robinhood, like if, well, actually Robinhood is like a bad example, but like imagine a world where like something that looks like Robinhood and doesn't have uh, censorship possibilities is propagated to everyone in the world, even if you're not in the United States, that anybody, be they in Malaysia or let's say Vietnam, could get easy access to buy things like Tesla and Apple whenever they want it. Um, so I, I think the vision is like, you should have sort of like an acquisition funnel, like very large acquisition funnel of uh, trade by uh, powerhouses that are drawing uh, users into very basic use cases of DeFi, like savings and synthetics and different things like that. And then there's always going to be a more sophisticated version of DeFi. And this would be sort of our version of Wall Street, where people uh, play around with perpetual swaps and, you know, uh, sort of novel financial instruments. And I think in both of these uh, different areas of DeFi, there's going to be tremendous growth. And uh, I think it's going to be more, more symbiotic than most, what, what most people realize. Super interesting. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that vision for sure. Um, and it, it looks like you're obviously positioning yourself very well to, to be in kind of both sides there. Um, yeah. Awesome, though. Really, really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It was great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And before we close, here's another word about our awesome sponsors. Ensign provides an easy way to build, scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Ensign is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. The Ensign interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Enzyme.finance. Sirion offers a simple interface to access and use decentralized finance. You can connect your favorite wallet, trade tokens, liquidity provider shares, and vaults in a single transaction. And then you'll be able to track your PNL, average costs, and fees paid. All of this now is also available on mobile. Check out Kraken, where you can earn additional rewards by staking some of your favorite DeFi assets. With more than 1 billion in crypto staked, including 350,000 ETH, Kraken has paid out 27 million worth of rewards to their clients. Pay a third twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% annually. Sign up today at Kraken.com and start earning some of the most popular DeFi assets, including Polkadot, Uniswap, Aave, and more. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. 
In their new Bell for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bell tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans, lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.